Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest... I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises, now will focus only on advisory work for early stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest, Dave Polan, chairman of PM Hotel Group and co-president of Buccini Polan Group. Dave grew up in Portland, Oregon, And his dad was in the hotel business, so he had a chance firsthand to learn the insides of a hotel operation. It stimulated him so much, he decided to go ahead and attend the Cornell's Hotel Management Program, followed by a short stint at Laventhal and Horwath, which went out of business. So then he had to figure out what to do next. He came to Washington, D.C., and was counseled by his uncle, Abe Poland, who was the former owner of the Washington Wizards and Capitals. And he told him not to go to graduate business school and maybe consider starting his own business. So he did. So he talks about growing his business in this episode. Here are a few takeaways that you should listen for. One is the art of balancing roles. Dave wears many hats from the chairman of PM Hotel Group to co-president of Bucini, Poland. His journey to success, which was challenging at first, and he made it happen with persistence and having a banking relationship, which certainly helped him. His uncle introduced him to a local banker who stayed with them through their early start startup. Uh, Employee retention strategies. Dave 
believes in creating a workplace that people want to be part of. He shared unique profit sharing program that he has for his employees. He navigates challenges. Dave candidly discusses the cyclical nature of the hotel industry and the impact of events like the savings loan crisis, 9-11, the Great Recession, of course, COVID. His approach from an artistic perspective to managing hotels, including artwork and, of course, smell. We even talk about the sense of smell. Raising capital. Dave shares challenges of raising capital in the industry and why they created their Core 10, a multi-asset special service special situations real estate private equity firm to address it. Sustainability and technology. Dave emphasized their focus on sustainability and potential of AI in the hotel industry. Paying it forward. Dave expressed his goal of fostering a community of young people in the real estate industry and going forward. So he and I talk a bit about that and his support of the initiatives that I actually have started. So without further ado, please listen to this wide-ranging conversation with Dave Poland. So Dave Poland, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure. So could you describe your current roles at Bucini Poland and PM Hotel Group and your other enterprises <laughs> focus day-to-day? You bet. Anyone, please? You bet. <laughs> with PM Hotel Group, which is our hotel management affiliate, I'm the chairman and spend the majority of my time on strategy. At Buccini Poland Group, that's really the umbrella organization for the operating companies and the assets that we have ownership positions in. So that's a a less formal role. My partners and I are co-presidents legally, but what that means is we divide and conquer. So I spend my time exclusively on hotels and they spend their time, Chris Buccini on office, Rob Buccini on residential, and then we'll come together on youth sports, the BBG Sports Enterprise, which includes some athletic fields, a field house, interest in the Philadelphia Union Major League Soccer team, and then other stuff. So it's it's complicated in that regard, but my probably my only real executive title is chairman of PM Hotel Group. Okay. But you're partners in those other enterprises. Absolutely. We're equal yeah. partners in all things we do. Right. So what do you spend your time on? I mean, if you're chairman, you're more strategic, but are you doing deals? Are you structuring transactions on the hotel side? Or, I mean, are, are, are you letting other people do it? You kind of drew the advisory yeah. people to your team. For yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Well, I'll just briefly mention how I think about my time, and then I'll answer sure. the second part of the question. I, I divide it into really 20% chunks. And I think the most important chunk would be the 20% where I'm thinking external to the organization. I'm trying to put myself, you know, 24, 36, 48 months ahead. What will the capital markets be like? What will the operating environment be like? What challenges are going to come up and how do we get ready for that? And it's hard to find that time. So then I spend about 20% on PM Hotel Group in my chairman role. Again, more specifically, I'm overseeing the board. We have external advisory board members who add a lot to the discussion for our board meetings and in between and connect us in different ways at capital providers and maybe M&A opportunities or identify talent, help me think through big issues. So a management company is an operating company, as you know, and it requires more day-to-day and more HR focus than traditional real estate investing where you might have an asset management function. So then I spend about 20% in asset management 
We own 25 hotels. PM Hotel manages a total of about 65. Mm. So as you can see, more than two thirds, well, two thirds plus of our revenue comes from third parties, our clients. So I spent about 20% of my time helping asset manage the hotels that we own. And then I'd like to spend about 20% if I can in the community. It's, it's again, sometimes that is hard to do. We can't always control the, the questions that come in or the refinancing challenges we might have or an operating issue that comes up. But I participate on a number of boards and support community organizations. And if you're not proactive about it, it's really easy for that to get squeezed out of your day. I can understand that. So that's the, that's the total of 100 there. Okay. So let's go back in time. Tell us a little bit about your orange, origins, youth, and parental influences. Yeah. You know, as I, as I thought about what the backstory would be, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of my family. And it, it all started, at least for my little branch of the Poland family, my grandfather grew up outside Kiev. And it was Russia then, obviously Ukraine now. And he walked to Rotterdam when he was between 14 and 16 and got on a ship to the U.S. It was held at sea for two weeks while World War I began because it was a dangerous time. They finally got cleared. And he had some relatives here, but really no money, didn't speak English. You said walk. That's across Europe. Across Europe. We're doing research. My sister's actually writing a book about how he might have done that. Was there a network of people like an underground well, we railroad? We could take the Danube River for a big part of it, right? I yeah. think you might. <laughs> I doubt you have the money to do that. And he passed away when I was 10, so I never heard it directly from him. He didn't want to talk about it. He was never a fan of Russians. No one individually, of course, but just the culture and the difficulties that he had so there. So Ukrainians and Russians ethnically are different people is what you're saying. They, so. I believe so. I don't want to come across as an expert or out of my depth. But so he, he knew that in order to have the life he wanted, he had to leave. Once he became established in the U.S., he sent for his siblings, total of eight of them. But when he got here, he became a plumber's assistant, basically a ditch digger. And when the Great Depression came, of course, in the 30s, the plumber had two employees, him and his son. And he fired his son and kept my grandfather because he did the work of two men. So that kind of drive and work ethic always inspired me. And then taking it one generation closer, my father and my uncle were both entrepreneurs um, and hard workers. And so I've kind of picked up on that and knew one day I wanted to have my own business. Um, and while incredibly proud of both of them, I didn't want to join their organizations. I wanted to start something new. Mm-hmm. So your uncle, of course, is well well known in the Washington region, <laughs> Abe Bowen. So talk about his influence on you specifically since you're in Washington. Yeah. yeah. So what, what an incredible mentor to have. Oh, my goodness. Uh, he, he was, first of all, just incredibly smart. Most people talk about his connection with the community and all the ways that he supported D.C., including building the arena downtown, which is now Capital One, when that was not the obvious move, to say the least. But he always had time for me. We had lunch about once a month, and he was an incredible reference for me. So he would introduce me to potential lenders or investors and in every way had a lot to do with our being successful. Um, my father is 12 years younger, was 12 years younger. He's passed as well. 
And so for him, it was hard to be his own person when he was always Abe's kid brother and then Morris, my grandfather's grandson. So we moved to Portland, Oregon when I was a year old. And my parents visited, loved it, just found the people wonderful and the place beautiful and probably housing was really affordable compared to other places they were looking. So we we have a, a great community there that I'm still connected with. My siblings are all on the West Coast. My sisters live in Portland, my brother in Palm Springs. And so that was a terrific place to grow up. And I benefited from having really two hometowns, Washington, where my family's from originally and where I was born and Portland, where I grew up and my siblings are. So I had a, a great opportunity to learn from both my father and my uncle, and hopefully it took some of the best lessons uh, and created this organization we have here. So where did the hotel interest arise in your, in your life? Was it once as a kid? Yeah. Um, so my father was a hotel developer and owner and operator in Portland, Oregon. He had okay. three hotels there. And so I grew up washing dishes and doing every <laughs> Really tough job in hospitality. And John, there's a lot of tough jobs in hospitality, as you can imagine. The the first summer of washing dishes was a huge adjustment because, you know, it was hot and it was not, uh, the, my I wasn't controlling my circumstances. You know, I had a boss and that person was, was differently abled, as we'd say today, and not a good communicator. And so, again, from... Why did your dad think that was a good thing for you to do? Yeah, but I can't wait to do it to my son either. <laughs> I think I think my father, you know, saw that his kids were growing up in a fairly privileged environment. Yeah. And and I don't want to say that we were flying around on private jets and had five houses. We didn't. We didn't. But but we had the basics, we had family vacations. And so I think he wanted to instill the culture of hard work in us. And so each of us worked either at the hotel or in construction in you know fairly demanding physical roles. And that was really, really helpful for me. I would say the thing I'm most happy about that now is that I have a really good connection with the people in my organization who do those jobs because I have the credibility of having done them. And I understand how difficult they can be. And whether it's a customer service issue where you're really trying to solve a problem that you didn't foresee, or if it's just the day-to-day tedium of washing dishes, you know, how do we create a company where those people feel valued and can thrive? And so we'll get there, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So you then decided to go to the Cornell Hotel School. Talk about that evolution of thought. <laughs> yeah, you bet. You bet. So when, when you grow up working in hotels and your family's in the business, for many of us, every Mother's Day, birthday, we were at the hotel like three, four or five times a month <laughs> for various things. And I loved the people who worked there. I spent a lot of time with them. I was, of course, working there in my teenage years. And so it felt natural for me to to build on that. And the things I loved about it were the personal connections, but also being part of a team. So I've always played team sports as well. And we accomplish things together. Sometimes we lose, but most of the time we can achieve our goal and it feels better to do it as part of a larger team. So I love that about it. And it's also competitive. You know, you're trying to kick the hotel across the street's butt, you know, and there are just like NBA standings, there's the rev par index. So we know market share wise, are we doing better than our competitors? So I just love all those things about it. And it's also really tangible. I don't know if, you know, trading bonds, if my father had done that, if I would have found it as attractive, but I love the design part, the construction and the people. Yeah. So, uh, 
you were growing up if you in competitive sports, I'm guessing you played basketball because you're a tall guy and you're A. Poland's nephew. So, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, and now you're a soccer owner. So, obviously, competition is interesting to you. But getting to Cornell from Oregon is interesting. So, yeah. why? Why Cornell? And did you talk to Duke at other schools? My brother is a graduate of Michigan State's hotel. Oh, That's very good school. school. Yeah. 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 So I'm just curious. Yeah. I just identified Cornell as what, again, humbly at the time I thought was probably the, the best hotel school. And I know there's many great ones, Michigan State, UNLV, and I could name probably 10 others. UCF recently I've been to. But, but Cornell was, to me, iconic. Again, it was before the internet in the 80s. But I was a pretty good football player, and I actually had scholarships from a few Pac-12 schools. Ah. Soon to be the Pac-2, I think. Four. <laughs> four. Down to four. Oh, no. So that's sad in a way. But my father tried to negotiate with me to go to a Pac-12 school. He said, well, I'll split the tuition with you because I would have had a scholarship. I said, no, I really want to go to Cornell. I said, well, I'll, I'll give you a car. I said, no, I want to go to Cornell. You can use a vacation now. So... But he was really supportive. The tuition was expensive and getting there was expensive. And so not only did he support me going there, but I played football at Cornell and uh, he came to every game. Really? So he flew his butt to Hanover, New Hampshire, (laughs) Princeton, New Jersey every weekend, got on a plane. If it was a home game to Ithaca. And so I, I hope I can be that good of a father to my kids. That's awesome. So did you have a good experience at Cornell? Did you enjoy yourself there? I did. I think I met my lifelong best friends. Still have a connection with the school, with some of the professors that taught me when I was there. Met my partner at Cornell, a football player also. You get to learn a lot about people on the football field, especially during daily doubles when it's 100 degrees. And so I really you know, was fortunate that I got to you know, meet Rob and learn about his character um, and you know, identify him as someone that would be a great partner one day. So yeah, so Cornell's had many positive influences. I'm up there frequently lecturing, um, involved with uh, Dean's Advisory Board, and we hire as many hoteliers as we can get. So we, we try to keep that ecosystem really fresh and robust. Mm-hmm. So you left there, and then what was your thought process at that point? What was it? Did you want to get right into the industry? Did you think about your parents, your uncle? You know, yeah. what, what were your thought processes when yeah. you got out of Cornell? So being being relatively old, graduating in 1990, that was a terrible economic environment. It was tough. I interviewed with every company I could get, whether it was you know a Hilton or a Fairmont, and I never got a call back, not one. So I was not apparently qualified or amongst the top candidates to go into operations or any other job in hospitality. It was a scary time. As an aside, Rob Buccini, he didn't get a job for, I think, six or seven months after graduation. And that was common. I'd say only about half of the hotels had jobs at graduation. And now, more typically, there'll be two or three job offers, right? So just tough time. I was fortunate in that I had met the principal of the Lamenthal and Horwath office in Seattle, Andy Olson, just a terrific person. And serendipitously, around the time I was graduating, the Phoenix office of Labenthal was asking, hey, anyone have any good candidates? We need someone quickly. So Andy said, yeah, call Dave. So long story short, we connected before spring break. I went out there before spring break to interview and I was really fortunate to receive that job offer. Of course, I took it immediately, 
And Rich Warnick, who was my first boss, is still a mentor today and someone who taught me uh, an incredible amount about hotels, underwriting, markets, capitalization. We did litigation support. So much of what I still rely on today, I learned from him and his team, including Greg Miller, um, another one of my partners out there. So explain what Laventhal was doing at that time. You bet. Seventh biggest CPA firm at the time. They'd be five today if they hadn't gone out of business because two of the six merged, or say four of the six merged into two firms. But it was related to hotel capital markets work. So it was feasibility studies, market studies. Mm-hmm. I mentioned litigation support. And it was during a difficult time. So we were doing a lot of work for banks trying to value assets. Um, but again, having that perspective across hundreds of different deals really you know, taught me what worked and why. And I really still benefit from that. So did you do economic analysis or more market analysis at that time? Just yeah, it was both. Was it? It was okay. both. And I was coming in not long after computers made our jobs right. actually doable. Right. Because they were using like the 10 column green and white paper. And if you had to go back and change an ADR assumption, you know, it would it's take a you a whole day. That is just, yes. Yeah. Right. So I was really fortunate. One of my first engagements was the boulders where – they had a resort, golf courses, expansion plan, home sites, a mall, a retail center, power plants. We were valuing the whole thing. Where is the boulders? Scottsdale. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So just an idea of like, I didn't expect to learn about retail, but but we learned about it because of that. That's cool. And then L&H went out of business in 93, right? 90. Was it 90? Yeah. It was later than that. Okay. I was there about six months. That's it. Yeah. Rich Warnick, another reason I'm very loyal and appreciative of him is he and two of his associates, very bright people, formed a firm that was oh. successor. So I stayed with him for a couple more years after that. Or I should say he somehow saw fit to keep me employed for a couple more years, which I was very grateful for. And then what? And then it was time to start this company. Um Rob and I had kept in contact after college. He was in New York working for a broker. And so he was continuing his real estate education in that way. But the, the funny story was the NBA All-Star Game, the 92-93 season happened to be in Phoenix. So my father and, and Abe came to Phoenix. We were having dinner. And I knew the question was coming. Hey, what are you going to do next? You've been here two and a half years. You know, Maybe you like the weather and the girls a little too much. and You've learned a lot. What's next? So I said... I want to go to Harvard Business School. And they almost fell out of their chairs laughing. They're like, no, 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 you're a Poland. You're going to go to work. You're not going to business school. So I said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll start my own business. And so my dad said, hey, why don't you come to Portland and you know, we'll work together on entrepreneurial things. And Abe said, or if you want to come to DC, I can help you get started. And I knew, again, I didn't want to necessarily join either of their organizations, but to start something new. And my, my thought process as a 24 or 25-year-old was, well, you know, I've already dated most of the cute girls in Portland. I ought to try D.C. So ended up here with a great network of Cornell friends and family. Um, and Rob stayed in New York for a bit after that. And he ultimately relocated to Wilmington, where he, is where he grew up, right? Yeah. So talk about, I mean... Your for, the formation of your company seems very unique to me. So talk about the thought process of bringing hotels and other products together like you do and that whole formation. Or did it evolve? You know, we started with hotels and then we mm-hmm. said, oh, we're going to do some other things. How did that kind of all germinate? 
Yeah, no, we started from day one knowing that we wanted to be diversified. And office and hotel were the first two ventures that we undertook. We also knew, I think John which differentiates us a little bit, is that we want to be operators as well. And so, as you know from taking a little bit of a deep dive into our organization, we pretty much manage everything we own. And we have really robust operating companies. So there's a lot of people, I would say, who like to get management fees, but may not have invested really in the infrastructure to be best-in-class managers. And I leave that for others to decide whether we're best-in-class or not. And you know that because if you're being hired to do third-party work, that's validation that you have great people, great systems, and maybe you are best-in-class. So that we do find that to be the case in, uh, in our operating companies. But, but I think those were the differentiators when we started. It's like we wanted to be of scale. We wanted to have multiple geographies, multiple hometowns, not just D.C., not just New York or not just Philly. And we wanted to do office, hotel, and ultimately grew into do other asset classes as well. Did you look at on a national scale from the get-go or were you focused on the local geographic markets that you were initially focused on? Yeah, no. When, when you get started... Having credibility is really everything. Of course. So being here or being in Portland were really my two best shots of having that credibility, having worked in both places and lived in both places. So we knew that the first assets for the hotel, which I was overseeing, needed to be in this metro area. And the same was true really with Rob and Office. So our first office project was in the Philadelphia suburbs. Again, I don't think we'd have that credibility nor connections to capital in a place like Phoenix, which right. I dearly loved. But again, just didn't have that head start for my family. And I looked at it as, you know, I have this quiver full of arrows. And one of them is, you know, my last name. And I felt that it was very appropriate to use that, not to capitalize it in a way that I think was, you know, inappropriate. But because I had that advantage, I, I took advantage of it. Mm -hmm. So did Abe introduce you to some people as far as getting things started? 100%. He introduced us to Franklin National Bank. Sure. Which ultimately, as you know, became part of BB&T, which is now part of Truist. So he was friends with Bob Pincus. Bob Pincus. Like many people were, and you yes. probably as well. His name has come up a few times. The yes, yes. Yes. So those community banks are so crucial to new businesses and entrepreneurs, and they help underwrite things like character and community as well as just a, well, a spreadsheet. You and I know that hotel financing is not an easy science. <laughs> so... Having a capital partner early on is a big help, I would think. Yes, right? yes. So when when Abe said to Bob and the other folks at the bank, hey, we'd, we'd like you to do this, it will probably get done. And I think that may have been the only way. Um, and also, thinking back to that time, we broke ground in four, and that was a tough time in the capital oh. markets. Oh, yeah. The SNL crisis was not fully behind us. The RTC no. was still there. And so, again, we got very fortunate. That was the big roll up of REITs and all the things going on. Yeah. It was a, you know, J.E. Roberts doing the RTC, yes. the whole activity there. So the hotel business was struggling even at that point. And then it, it got stronger as the 90s went on. It did. It did. You could see. Yeah. So you, what was your first deal in Washington? So we built the Best Western Gunston Corner oh, sure. in Lorton, Virginia. Yeah. It is now a Holiday Express. But when we opened it, it was, I'm going to say overbuilt. The, the tendency was to add 
bells and whistles and make the finishes at a high level because we just didn't want to take a chance. And so we Western. (laughs) I think that was the response that the market had too. So I grew up in Portland and my my partner in PM Hotel Group, Greg Miller, who was overseeing the hotel, you know, we were we were exposed to Best Western in a positive way. And not everyone here in the East Coast was. So we within a year or two converted to Comfort Inn which is based in DC or DC area. And we got, we have found a lot of success, but I think the one lesson that I took away was when the hotel was under construction, I got this probably because I wasn't sleeping, but I had this huge wave of doubt wash over me. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if this hotel is going to work. It really isn't knowable, right. Until it opens. So I said, I think I better get the second hotel going before the report card is back on this first hotel. There you go. And so I had the credibility at that time of a building under construction. And that's a lot more than I had before, because before I just had ideas. But now we had a site, we had permits, we had construction underway, we were capitalized. And so the second hotel was the Comfort Suites at BWI Airport. And as feared, the first hotel struggled out of the blocks. It was late, it was over budget and opened off season. But that second hotel opened about a year later in um, October of 97 and took off like a rocket. BWI was exploding with Southwest Airlines. So we got lucky. And that hotel was really, I think, one of the major catalysts for the growth of our company. Mm-hmm. So you going to school at Cornell, you understood the differenti- differentiation of revenue sources and stuff for hotels. Yeah. So... Opening up a Best Western down in Gunston, Virginia, or that, that you know, what was your thought process? I mean, what what was your, you know, where was your demand coming from? Was it the 95 quarter people? Was it, you know, uh, Port Belvoir is nearby? I mean, what, what was your thinking with regard to bringing in uh, hotel rooms? Well, you nailed two out of the four, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, Port Belvoir was important. We also are right at the same exit as the Amtrak auto train. Ah, so that was a really important right. source of demand, right. but it was a little more seasonal than I thought. It doesn't happen. There's not much going on in the summer. And then Potomac Mills was ah, a tourist attraction. There you go. I don't think it is anymore. Oh, it was the number one in the state. Yes. Incredible, <laughs> right? It was. So again, I don't want to mislead you and tell you that hotel did 80% its first night. I would go down to the Sitco station at the exit, exit 163, Norton Road, and I would hand out $50 coupons for the hotel to really? everyone getting gas because we were really struggling through that first winter, just trying to pay payroll. And I would send a letter to the bank, hey, is it okay if we stay interest only for another three months? And they were very accommodating. And so we figured it out and the hotel ultimately was a big success. But yeah, it really struggled out of the blocks. So Potomac Mills was your savior to some extent? That Was that it? You know what the savior was? It was a really good move by Greg Miller to focus intently on the tour and travel market. Interesting. So a lot of kids groups, school ah, groups. And so once we found that, it really helped even out demand. That's what's so interesting about the hotel business that you just don't know what you're going to get until you open the hotel and get a sense of what, yeah, or the demand metrics change. And they change, yeah. I assume, periodically just with, different demand drivers that open up, right? hundred percent. Yeah. Hotels are an operating business and real estate is not even the most important non-operating component. Brand is arguably more important than your location. 
you know, in, in general terms, obviously you're in the middle of the desert and it's different, but yeah, there's so many factors that make a hotel difficult to underwrite and not for amateurs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it appears, as you said earlier, it appears that your intentions become vertically and horizontally integrated with all aspects of real estate investment, management, leasing, development, and construction from your inception. Was that the case and why? I mean, I mean that's a lot to take on all at once. I mean, yeah. it seems like it, there was some organic growth, right? So you, let's start it this way, but you, you just can't take everything on at once, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. No, listen. So Rob and I had similar backgrounds that we were from families that were immigrant, you know, spirited families and worked hard. His parents owned a sheet metal contractor. It was only 24 hours in a day. Yes, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but it was it was really inconceivable for us to, for example, build a hotel and have someone else operate it. Of course, we were going to scrub the toilets and make breakfast and, you know, order the sheets and do those things. Just of course. <laughs> and I would just mention, too, that on the hotel side, because it's an operating business, we set PM Hotel Group up from day one as a separate entity. And Greg Miller, who I mentioned, who was actually my supervisor at Laventhal in Phoenix, he and I had started the company along with Rob, Rob getting full credit. But Greg really spent all his time focused on operations where I would work with him there, but also try to grow the hotel footprint um, on the development side. So we believed that systems and people made a difference from day one. And you know, that's still the case today. So hiring getting people and building culture. What, how did that all kind of evolve? I mean, did you have this sense of what, you know, you guys, what your message to the market was at that point, or did that evolve? Also? Yeah, it, it definitely evolved. Greg and I had both worked in operations growing up. And again, Rob had done construction and other mm-hmm. hands-on uh, labor as well. So we knew what kind of bosses we liked and we knew where people got the most productivity out of us. And we just aspired to create a culture, not a company, a place where people wanted to work, a place to have a career, not a job. And so we've invested over time a lot in creating the culture of PM Hotel Group. And just a quick aside, this culture at this hotel company is very different than the culture at BPG 360, which is our office management company. And we don't really even do health benefits. We don't do property insurance together. And the reason is we just see the world very differently through different lenses. So even though we're same ownership, part of the same group, affiliated and collaborate on many things, the PM Hotel Group culture is its own standalone culture. And so we're here in D.C., the capital of the world for hotels, and we have a lot of different ways to reinforce that. Our turnover is extremely low as a result of it. We are about 10 percent in our professional ranks or above property ranks turnover. I'd say it's about a quarter of the industry. Even at the property level, we're you know, less than 60%. And across the industry, it's over 120%. So we retain people at the above property level through profit sharing as an example of investing in them. And so they their salary, of course, they get incentives, but then this profit sharing allows them to share in the um, success of the organization. And it doesn't matter whether I like your hairstyle or not, or whether you did a great job in the last assignment, it's, you have to be here to get it. So we paid in August of the following year. So it's a retention tool as well. So it's good for the organization. And 
there's several hundred thousand dollars going out the door. It's so it's your level multiplied by your number of years here. So there are people who get like very significant checks, um, five figure checks. And I think they feel like owners because of that. At the line level, we have PMTV, which um, is in every break room and every hotel. And so we talk about our culture and the things that make us special. We celebrate together things, but that's an expense that we invest in because if you're in Oakland, for example, working for a PM managed hotel there, why wouldn't you go across the street for the same job for 10 cents more an hour? And the only answer is because you feel valued and it's a culture you aspire to be part of. So that's really our job at PM Hotel Group is to create a place that people want to be. And if that virtuous cycle manifests, then your replacement costs are your cost of recruiting and onboarding and training and retaining people is much lower. So it does benefit us. There's an ROI on that investment, but it's also kind of who we are as people and as a company. So you, you mentioned that two thirds of your properties are third party management. Yes. So you're obviously trying to go out and do deals as an owner, but you've got your, your client base that are, that are maybe your competitors for transactions and stuff. So yeah. how do you separate the businesses? And, you know, I used to work for the BF Saw Company. Oh, and yeah. When I started here, the BF Saw Company was, we were mortgage bankers. And, you know, the company owned, you know, it wasn't Saw Centers at the time. It was a, another form of a real estate investment trust ownership, but it owned a lot of retail yeah. centers around the region that they had bought from giant food over the years. So we'd go out and try and pitch retail developers to, to finance properties. And they said, no, we're not going to talk to you because mm-hmm. you, your company competes with us. You know, with the, you know, so how do you deal with that issue? I'm, just, I'm giving it an analogy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So we have an example at BWI Airport where BPG owns the BWI Hilton, but PM Hotel Group doesn't own any hotels. It's completely right. a third-party entity. Um, and we, for a great owner, who's also locally based, we manage the Westin BWI. Ah. So one would consider them direct competitors in most right. instances. Sure. Uh-huh. So that owner figured, because we shared with him and he believed us, that we could save him a substantial amount by complexing things like van transportation to the airport, by having a chief engineer with remarkably high-level skills working on both properties that Ah, maybe each hotel could afford on its own. The sales departments could work together when it made sense. Complementary then. Yeah, so the Hilton would potentially sell out and... Well, we have this opportunity. Of course, we're going to share it with the Westin and then vice versa. So it is a little bit different than the example you gave because there's more to be gained from collaboration than potentially lost due to competition. But I will also say that as really the owner's representative on that Hilton, I do not look at the Westin's statements. I don't have access to their daily reporting. I don't want it. And I do want the team at the Westin to try to beat the Hilton. They should, mm-hmm. and I encourage that. So you have kind of a Chinese wall in a way, to some extent. There, yes, right? at the owner level, but the operations teams work closely together. Okay, that's good. So you, you talked a little bit about this, your struggles with your first couple of hotels. Any other major challenges you had getting your business off the ground and going? I mean, obviously hiring had to be a big part of it. What other issues did you deal with? Uh, yeah, yeah. Capital markets mostly, or... Hiring or what were the other issues? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I would say on the hotel side, wow, is it cyclical? And oh, yeah. it seems to get more violently cyclical as we go. And, you know, we suffered through, well, the RTC days, the, right. the savings and loan crisis. Um, 9-11 was you know, oh. incredibly sad, but also very difficult for the hotel community. And then the Great Recession and, and COVID. So we are used to the, again, the ups and downs of the cyclicality. Uh, but John, the, the reason that we wanted to do multiple asset classes is because we recognize that now I didn't realize to the extent it would be beneficial, but if during the great recession, we didn't have our scale, then we probably wouldn't have gotten through it. And during COVID, if we were exclusively hotel, I don't know what would happen. And so the additional way that we've really focused on diversifying our um, revenue and wealth and holdings is through third-party management fees. And so that's been crucial on the hotel side, um, those third-party fees. I mean, that's what the C-Corps, you know, Hilton and Marriott and Choice and Hyatt talk about, is you know, being able to provide a service and using your IP to generate revenue. And so that's another way for us to um, grow the enterprise and insulate ourselves when cycles happen. Well, thinking about the early 90s, and I mentioned this earlier, several of your competitive hotel investment companies are public companies. So you didn't have the scale in the 90s to think about that, but you probably do. If not now, you've had it maybe a few years from now. Has that ever been a thought process that you've had to roll up? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great question. And, you know, it's interesting because you talk to the REIT CEOs who are all just really smart and talented and great people. Pretty well. And they are. Yes, you do. And they have great people skills. They're all here. Right. Right. So you get to see them. Um, Sometimes it's their time and sometimes it's our time. So when their stock is performing, then no one can compete with them. But because they're public, sometimes their stock is not performing and they're not mm-hmm. in a position. Or, you know, like today, many of them are deciding, is it better for me to deploy capital into new assets or should I really be buying my stock back? So, but when it's their time, their capital is so efficient that no one else can compete with them. So it's really interesting for us. We think about it a lot, but we're happy with our private structure. I will say that our sources of capital are really diverse, however, whether it's uh, working with institutional joint venture partners, what could be a a private equity firm or a life insurance company or our friends and family investors, or if it's just me and my partners on a project, we found generally that we're able to do what we want to do without that public scrutiny and without potentially having things we can't control you know, force our hand. So if, again, a REIT stock is way down, it may force them to do something they don't want to do. And sometimes also the additional scrutiny can be a distraction. So we feel private is better for us today. Mm-hmm. And you also have more control over decision-making too. You don't have to sit with a board of directors and then have all these quarterly, yes. you know, analysts telling you, why are you doing this? Why can't you, you know, do what your other peers are doing? Or That's whatever. a great point, yeah. Right? And they spend a ton of time at NAREIT and with other, it's called stakeholders. Yeah. Yeah. It's a well, the, the, yeah the, and the flip side of that is the financial flexibility they have of going either to raise capital on the equity markets or get a bank line that's really attractive financing to go. If you wanted to buy a hotel, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll just go down the drama bank line. We don't have to raise the capital and do all the, you know, equity raise, which is a lot harder sometimes. 100%. So anyway, you know, there are trade-offs. Yeah. 
Sounds like you're not ready to make that trade off, but someday you might. Who knows? Right? You're right. You're right. <laughs> or maybe just call one of them and have them buy our portfolio. Well, that's another way to do it. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier before we started, I, I listened to a conversation you had with Jake Wurzak, who's obviously a, well, a very successful hotel operator. My audience is not as savvy in hotels. Um, perhaps you can further illuminate the complexity of hotel operations that integrate with traditional real estate operations and you know what, what the difference is. Every day is a fresh revenue stream, <laughs> whereas expenses are mostly fixed, some variable, but managing this is a special effort. Perhaps explain what's important to be a great hotel manager and how it differs from other property management. Yeah. Our management company has the scale to have what, what I humbly believe are best-in-class leaders in most functions, but very importantly, commercial strategy or revenue. And a hotel will, if you broke it down into the, say, two main sources of business, there's basically business and leisure. But from there, it breaks down quite a bit more granular. You have group, you have transient, and then there's a thousand different trip occasions within those. So youth sports, is that group or is it transient? Well, it's kind of both. You have contracts that could be airlines or it could be a FEMA crew coming in to clean up after COVID. So there's a trillion different demand segments. And in order to really maximize or optimize a hotel's revenue, you have to really be able to understand all of them and deploy resources against them. So we really have three levels of revenue um, generation. The, the hotel sales team, arguably the most important relationships in the community. And I also started by just talking about rooms. So there's banquet and catering revenue food as well. And that's part of food and beverage. The other part of food and beverage being outlets and bars. So you're getting a sense of it's remarkably complicated, but we need our on-property team Everyone is in sales, from the general manager to the executive housekeeper. How we interact with our guests leads to more business. But so the revenue team on property for a full-service hotel could be seven, eight, ten people. Someone focusing on business transient, someone focusing on social business, like ethnic weddings, an Indian wedding or a kosher wedding. Then there's, of course, the group side of it. And then we're also spending a ton of time, mainly above property level, at the regional level on revenue management. And that's working within the brand systems mm -hmm. to deploy our hotel inventory at the best rate. Much of that is now algorithmic, but you have, no, there's when demand is going up, rates will go up. Mm -hmm. And if there's an external factor like Super Bowl in Las Vegas this year, well, obviously that's an important factor as we price our rooms over that period. But the additional factor there is you have things like OTAs or online travel agents like Hotels.com or Priceline. Should we be putting inventory into those channels because it's more expensive? So you only do that when you need it. You wouldn't do that midweek in a business city. So it gets really complicated on the revenue management side. And so we do let the algorithms run, but we have to provide fences and structure to that. So if our goal is to do 40% group mix, that's going to, a certain hotel, that's going to have a big impact on how we set rates for the balance of our inventory. And if we go into 2024 in a place like Baltimore with a great convention calendar, that will impact how we think about setting our transient rates. 
And if it's a terrible convention calendar, well, you can imagine then we're going to have to do a lot of work with small group, et cetera. So it's a really sophisticated jigsaw. And we have to have really talented people at, I mentioned the property level and the regional level. And then the thought leadership is really the senior leadership team here. It's led by Lavelle Cacero and uh, Tina McDonald and other people who really spend full time thinking about what is the way to optimize revenue. And we're competing against really smart people. You know, Hilton and Marriott manage, other independent management companies manage, and then the OTAs are also competitors and collaborators well, in certain ways. There's also a recent phenomenon known as uh, Airbnb and VRBO, yes. which are another interesting phenomenon. That's true. Yeah, we call people that don't stay in hotels but go that route, and it's leakage. <laughs> so we do not like that shadow inventory. It's another term for it, but we understand that it's a part of life. I will say this, though, that people travel a lot more maybe because those options are out there than they used to. And I've traveled as a family and sometimes we prefer to have a home by itself. So there's a place in the market for them and we wish them success. We do feel like it's important that they be subject to the same rules and regulations we are. They should be providing occupancy tax to the municipalities to help pay for infrastructure, police, fire, and other things the cities do. So as long as they're subject to the same rules of the game, then you know, generally we support it. Have you thought about that business? No, you know, we feel like hotels are challenging enough. And <laughs> we really want to pour our resources into being great there. And I do want to mention one other thing, John. I don't want to be too long-winded on this because the rabbit hole is deep, but we've been spending a lot of energy over the past you know, 10 years or so on lifestyle hotels. Ah. And you might say, well, you know, Dave wants to be cool and wear his black t-shirt and go to the Virgin Hotel in Nashville, which is one of our properties or you know, one of the new ones that we're developing mm-hmm. now. And I would only say that the, the development cost difference between a true lifestyle hotel, and by that I mean a one hotel, Virgin Hotels, W, Viceroy, is, is 60. 60, great example. Yeah, it's not that much more expensive to develop. Mm-hmm. But at the Virgin Hotel Nashville, our goal for this year was probably to do 15 to 20 million of food and beverage. If that were a traditional branded hotel in the same building, same location, even the same management, my sense is it probably wouldn't even do half that much food and beverage revenue. And the reason is, is the lifestyle hotels generally are successful in engaging with the community. And I often say, if you took your spouse to a traditionally branded hotel for your anniversary dinner, that might be your last anniversary. But if you took him or her to you know, the one hotel or the Virgin Hotel, they might think you're cool. And so that's really the difference. Through the same box, if I can do twice as much food and beverage, a lot of that marginal revenue goes to the bottom line, helps support debt service and create value, et cetera. So that's where we've been spending our energy. Have you melded the two ideas? Where, like, for instance, I think we're going to talk about this property soon, the the, the Marriott that you just built downtown. Yeah. That has a signature chef, I believe, in the the top. So that's more of a traditional Marriott hotel. It is. And you've got boutique features to it. So talk about that meld there a little bit. Or am I inaccurate in that? Oh, no, you nailed it. The, The great thing about that specific hotel is... I think it represents Marriott's vision for what that core brand is needs to be to be relevant for future travelers. 
Because remember, Gen Z and millennials, they react differently than we did. I yes. think we were happy to have a clean room and breakfast, you know, a sh- shower or even a bath that was hot. And so their expectations are much higher now. And they're seeing images on Instagram and other places of really experiential hotels. Yes. So whether they're going overnight for a work trip or whether they're going on vacation with their partners or friends, their expectations are higher. They want great design. They want great food and beverage. They want local relevance. So some indigenous touches, whether it's food or art or community-based interaction. So they want more experiential things. And so the brands that are continuing to be successful in the marketplace and will be continuing to be successful are addressing that just like Marriott. So we think that Marriott's on the right track with their what we call hard brand. But what we did in order to react, or I should say react with the community was Yara, which is our rooftop restaurant. It's helmed by a terrific, terrific chef, chef Yuki Nakandari, who has Peruvian and Japanese roots. So it wasn't some, you know, hey, let's do a white paper. We, we found talent and then built a restaurant and a menu around his skills. And he's already well-known locally. And it's been really successful. People are living in smaller apartments in D.C. and other major cities. They have less ability to interact with the environment. Maybe there's not a park nearby. And so a rooftop or an outdoor space becomes even more relevant. In a neighborhood like Noma, where the hotel is, even though it's next to Capitol Hill, many of the residents are in Noma, there's maybe 5,000 apartment units on the way to 10,000. And so really they're the people that we want to come to Yara um, weekly and experience it. Millennials, yeah. Well, that's interesting. I'm just, this whole boutique thing is just really taken off. And I guess what you're saying is it's the image of this generation really wanting to spend the money to, to enjoy that kind of an experience is what you're saying. Yeah, I think people have enough stuff during COVID, they bought sofas and desks and chairs and computers, and now they want experiences. And so the last thing I'll say on the brand side is that could potentially have been an autograph collection hotel, which is a Marriott full service brand. And we could have managed it, but we felt that the Marriott brand would resonate in that marketplace because the demand generators to a large part are ATF. SEC, and other large format government agencies, mm-hmm. plus people doing business with the capital. So having the experience for them was maybe less secondary than having the reliability of what a Marriott is. And it's, it's becoming something that's great. But again, it was less about the story and more about the execution. So we felt that the Marriott flag was a better fit there. Well, I've been to the new headquarters hotel, and they have two settings that are fascinating to me. The courtyard, you know, ground floor, seven, seven state, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And then their rooftop hip flask is really an interesting yeah. setup. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that. Probably. I have. And they're doing great. The, yeah. the community has really embraced the food and beverage there. Right. It's interesting. Have you instituted hotel-like revenues and other property types in your company's portfolio? I've noticed that apartments, office buildings, and retail are incorporating hospitality themes in both design and operations. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I want to be really specific. So Rob Buccini oversees residential, Chris Buccini, who oversees office, they're extremely involved with PM Hotel Group. They're on the board, so we're reporting right. them all the time. Right. They're in the properties. They're talking with our people. They're experiencing it firsthand. They're going through design process with me. 
And they've pulled a lot of what makes hospitality feel special into those other asset classes, exactly to your point. So the amenity spaces now in our residential buildings could be a lifestyle hotel, same quality, actual activities, not just a pool, mm-hmm. but you know things, gyms that have cantilevering door, cantilevering doors to the outside. So when the weather's good, you're actually working out this really unique, special, experiential things. And then in the residential units too, pulling a lot of the materials from hotels. You know, we were some of the first people to put you know LVT into multifamily buildings, not carpet. To put really high-end showers into new apartment buildings as opposed to bathtubs, which again, our earlier apartment buildings were you know, more traditional in that regard. So, so hospitality is infused into you know, all the asset classes that we're working in today. It's a good question. I interviewed uh, Toby Bazudo recently. Oh yeah, the Bazudo companies, and two things that he talked about, and he's he's a musician. That's what his his background is. He wanted to bring more of an artistic approach to managing, and they have 91,000 units in their portfolio. Spectacular. And he's he's doing original artwork, and he's bringing hotel designers in to mm-hmm. to for his lobbies or common areas and wants that same feeling. And now looking at the units, too. Same mm-hmm. thing. Same thinking you're thinking. And the other thing that I thought was interesting is whenever I go into a Zudo property, there's a unique smell that you have mm-hmm. when you walk in. And it seems to me that came from the hospitality industry. Am I right? A hundred percent. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we, we definitely want it, whether it's subconscious or conscious, we want you to feel you know, comfortable and you know, maybe feel a little bit energized. And, and that is a great way to do it. So when's the first time you were exposed to that thought process? Just out of curiosity. And yeah. Where- so I was on the... Canopy, I still am on the Canopy brand owner advisory council. Okay. And so before the first Canopy Hotel opened, the really enlightened leader of, of that brand, Gary Stefan, at the time, you know, identified that as a real opportunity for us. And so, you know, it kind of like clicked at that point. Well, of course, we're engaging all the other senses and think about how intimate a hotel is, like compared to an office building. Like you sleep in our beds and you eat our food and you're in our shower. Like it's super intimate. And so that just made sense to engage that other sense as well. And uh, he was right. And I think it does. Well, taste, of course, with food. Too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so you actually, in the HVAC system, you infuse some kind of a scent in that? Or how does, how does that work? Yeah, it will vary. Sometimes it's a standalone unit if it's for a smaller space uh-huh. uh, or an older property. Like a lobby, for instance, in a big hotel. What would you do? Well, that, that would be an HVAC. You're right. Because we're circulating. There's a central plant that we would circulate air. So yes, it would be in the system. So you infuse a scent in that. That's yeah. And each brand has its own scents. And for independent <laughs> hotels, we get a pick as the owner which scent to use. That's crazy. There's just these nuances in the hospitality space that's unique to any other real estate that I'm aware of. Yeah. Am I right there? I, I agree. I agree. It's, it's fascinating. Pivoting from management to investments and development, how do you pursue new opportunities that don't interfere or compete with your existing management clients. We talked about that. And talk about your hotel lens. You know, what's your lens for deals today? What are you looking for? What what makes sense to, to either buy or develop? I mean, your first two deals were development deals. I mean, yeah. most people don't go out of the chute, you know, ground up on a hotel. Yeah. That's kind of like, whoa. Yeah. So what what would differentiate buying a property as opposed to developing one ground up? 
Yeah, yeah. Just it really quick. We started BPG to buy RTC assets, and we missed the window by six months. Oh my so goodness. land is the last asset class typically to recover value. So we bought some land at great values where we wanted ah, to be. Okay. And because our families had both been in construction in a way, we weren't really scared of it. We probably should have been. <laughs> uh, we were. Um, I would say, John, you might. If I had to just like put my job into one sentence, um, it's to deploy capital at every point in the cycle. Sometimes that's development, sometimes that's acquisition, sometimes that's what we're doing with Core 10, which we can talk about. Sometimes it's all three, depending on where the opportunities are. But I would say the first thing is, going back to the culture, I have really talented partners and people that I'm fortunate to work with who are better at what they do than I would be. So on the investment side, Darren Anzalone has been um, chief investment officer for our hotel group for BPG for 15 years. And so he's in the marketplace every day. He oversees the negotiating of contracts. He'll identify the opportunities that he thinks will resonate based on the strategy that we outline. We do strategy every six months, whiteboard because or white sheet because the inputs are changing in the background. Interest rates, construction costs, operating metrics, what's happening in various demand segments, various markets. For example, business transient, we don't think it comes 100% back to where it was. We think it's going to be 75 to 80%. So that affects how we think about hotels and where to invest. So all that's happening in the background. And if you just keep doing what you were doing, you'll be wrong. So we make ourselves start from scratch. It's painful. I don't think people will enjoy it anymore, but I get all my you know, hotel senior leaders in a room and we go through three or four different two hour meetings to talk about this. And we do a new clean sheet strategy for hotels every six months. We present it to the advisory board, including my partners including outside members. And we they pick it apart and ask questions and push and pull. And so I think that's keeping us ahead of the game and able to be smart about not only investments, but what to sell as well. So I would just boil it down there, having really talented people like Darren and then thinking widely about the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. So how do you make decisions on, you know, buying and selling? What, is it just market by market, deal by deal, you look at it, or is there a global decision making? You know, we're not going to limited service, ah, we're going to sell all those. Or, yeah. you know, what What kind of is it, or is it just individual assets? Is this the right time? You know, is there enough, you know, demand in the marketplace to buy? Are the REITs actively buying right now? So it's a good time to sell this asset. I mean, what, how do you, how do you think that through? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you said it well. I don't want to oversimplify it because it's really complicated. We, we probably own a billion dollars worth of hotels and have other asset classes as well. And they're all different. For residential, we're a buy, sorry, we're a build and hold because they're really difficult to replicate. We have a land bank that is difficult for others to match in the markets that we're active in, which is really Wilmington, Philadelphia. So we have a pipeline of three or four years of development sites. This is an office and residential? It's just residential. Just residential, yeah. yeah. Office is different as well, yeah. going through some unique challenges right now. But bringing me back to hotel, where I spend most of my time, um, again, about 20% of my time is on asset management. And that's thinking about each hotel. Frankly, right now, a lot of our decision-making is driven by loan maturities. Yeah. So... That may force our hand. I mean, just being very humble. If a lender says, I can't renew it or I'm going to re-underwrite it, you need to curtail this loan by $10 million, 
you know, we'll have to make decisions. Do we bring in rescue capital? Do we invest more friends and family dollars? Do we sell it? If we sell it, are we willing to take a loss? So I don't want to oversimplify it. Each asset gets a really deep dive review. And again, we do that every three months because our board meets every three months. We do strategy every six months, but going deep dive on each asset happens every quarter. So the capital markets are tough for hotels right now, I would think. So, I mean, I don't know how you do a ground up hotel today unless you get subsidies of some sort from somewhere, it yes. seems to me. Yes. Well, it's, it's part of kind of my perspective of survive till 25. We have two development projects that we're really excited about. I think we'll get both of them in ground by Q1 in a very difficult, if not the most difficult capital markets environment I've ever seen. If we're successful, which I think we will be, there's not going to be many other projects going. That's the advantage. So yeah, so supply should be cut in half for the next five years or so. Now, there'll be lots of new stuff built in the hotel space, but it'll be more select service, maybe more suburban. Mm -hmm. And so the luxury lifestyle stuff that we're focused on, not many other folks will be able to get their, their projects going. I think we will, and that should give us an advantage. There's a lot of people talking about converting office to residential. Has there been a thought process at all looking at about office to hotel at all in, in the thought process? Yeah, we've, we've done four office to multi conversions in our portfolio. So we agree that's a great potential solution and way to add value. On the hotel side, though, it, we have not found, we've thought about it. We've tried to come up with ideas, but it's such a heavy lift. The value add component of it is extensive, more so than residential because you're adding amenities, right? Um, you have to add services and laundry and things like that, that you may not need in yep. multi. So you're less efficient in terms of using the square footage, but you also have the constraints of window line, et cetera. So you have all the challenges. You have even more than, than the resi conversion world. And, you know, frankly, there's not much capital out to do anything value add in hotel today anyway. So that might slow it down. It feels like there still is more capital for residential though than there is for hotel. Yeah, although just today, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article that there's a trillion dollars of, of rollover going in the, in the apartment space over the next four years, and interest rates are probably double what they were when they were capitalized initially. So the question is, what happens? How do they get that done? They call Core 10. There's a good segue right there. Tell us about Core 10 and what how that all originated. Yeah, you know, from... From humble origins, you know, quite frankly, if you talk to many developers or sponsors, you know, if you want to use the institutional <laughs> language, um, the least efficient, most difficult part of our job is not necessarily finding deals or executing, it's raising capital. So a lot of times I'll call friends from college and say, hey, we're working on this. Is this something you're interested in investing in? And that takes a lot of time. And frankly, it's not that fun. And I'm 55 now. And so some of my friends have said, you know, look, I'm no longer interested in doing that. And so, you know, that capital formation part of the business is kind of like the knuckle dragging Neanderthal part of real estate. It's what I did for 30 years. Yeah. You understand the challenge, right? Oh, yeah. And it's not necessarily up to you whether you can raise it or not. There's capital markets challenges. and Of course. So anyway, so the idea originally behind Cortez was let's have a sponsor fund where will raise institutional money to be the BPG capital. We shifted violently during COVID for the better. Corten is really a special situation vehicle now. And we are no longer uh, 
going to invest it into BPG deals. We have not ever done a BPG deal with Corten. It's separate and standalone. Explain the origin of Corten and what it does. You bet. So Corten is a multi-asset class, special situations, real estate, private equity fund. PJ Yateman is the thought leader and the day-to-day leader for Corten. He's based in Philadelphia. Where how, we did have the start, how did the idea germinate? Yeah. So because we were having, you know, all these hours dedicated to calling friends and raising capital, <laughs> that's where the fund idea came in. But a fund is not real estate. Matter of fact, only about one third of what a fund does relates to real estate because you have so much investor relation right. uh, and compliance oh, yeah. and fundraising. So we did not have that expertise in house. We knew that if we wanted to do a fund, we needed to bring in someone that was capable and talented and had relationships and um, a reputation. And that describes PJ to the core. We've done several hundred million dollars of projects with PJ while he was at Hubert Adler. Ah, uh, sure. And then he ran well, Center Square. Right. Exactly. So we've loved him. He actually grew up with Rob and Chris. So we've known him for a long time. You know, the greater we, I met him you know, shortly after we started BPG. So he was the perfect fit. And so we, when he was willing to consider it, that's when we really started down the path of forming Corten. And so he, again, is an equal partner in it and he runs it day to day. It's doing investments in hotels and residential multifamily, mostly today, because that's where the opportunity is. And I think it's fairly straightforward for people who are exposed to real estate capital markets that the situation you described where if interest rates are the only things that have changed, it'll be difficult for projects to underwrite an extension or a new loan. They may need more capital. So the three options are sell, put in your own money, or put in someone else's money. So Corten's really there for that third option. And it's capital that's you know priced opportunistically but it's still less expensive than equity. And people have also accessed that capital for things like redeeming out a partner. Hey, I built this great project. My institutional partner needs to go, but I want to hold on to it. And so it's a great solution for that situation as well. And it's also, as people see opportunities in this market to acquire a portfolio, for example, or even a single asset that might be distressed, we're seeing a lot of those opportunities. So is it... Mostly subordinate financing, or is it bridge bridge capital on a first position, typically, or all of the above kind of thing? Yeah, we've done whole loans, right. and that's something we aspire to do more of. Mm-hmm. But you know, quite frankly, it's mostly been subordinate. We are common equity in some of our investments, so we actually are the JV. owner of or or the only owner. So oh, really, does, yeah. So Corten will acquire assets on its own. It's flexible, and I think the the term special situations really describes it best. We're not programmatic that we're going to go buy 10 million square feet of office in Manhattan. That's just not how we see the world. We want to work with sponsors, but we also want the discretion to do things that we think are interesting on our own. And we've been able to deploy over you know 450 million so far. We're almost done raising fund two, thinking about fund three for next year. So it feels like a platform that's got you know, a long runway ahead of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so apartments are the biggest chunk of that or hotel? Yeah. I mean, we're able to deploy capital into multifamily with great sponsors and great markets and get common equity type returns. Interesting. So no need to be common if you can be in a PREF situation or a PREF position mm-hmm. and get common type returns. <clears throat> are you looking nationally? We are. We are. We've 
invested in California, um, Oregon, Louisiana, Washington State. Yeah, so absolutely, and of course, up and down the East Coast. So you're you're a private equity firm too, in addition to being a hotel operator and all that. That's a lot. Well, listen, I think you know we call ourselves the largest food service venture capitalist in the Mid Atlantic because <laughs> we put so many restaurants in business to be amenities, you know, for our other asset classes in Wilmington. We we love to start businesses and we love to work with you know brilliant entrepreneurs and um, have been fortunate to be able to do that. So. What is, I mean, we talked individually about asset, but there's no typical hold strategy. So it just varies across the board on all your assets. Then. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to adhere to the investment thesis when right. we underwrote a deal, but we're very humble. And sometimes, you know, you have to pivot. And today it'd be hard to sell hotels. And we acquired a number of properties. One of our strategies before COVID and after the Great Recession was called an SFS. So it was stabilized, full-service suburban hotels, which no one else wanted. So we got them for like 60 cents of really? replacement. We, they were mostly renovated, didn't need a value-added heavy lift. We were able to generate great yields day one, uh, good overall yield on cost. But it would be a great time to exit those now based on their vintage, but that's not possible. So you know we're going to be agile, and if we have to – put in more capital or extend loans, we'll do that on behalf of the ventures. So March, 2020 comes along and you own some full service hotels and urban markets. What happened? Do we have to go there? <laughs> oh, no. uh, yeah, as, as expected, it happened fast. And when COVID first became part of the consciousness, you know, we were thinking here, okay, so we have a lot of third party management engagements and right. we'll be fine. And we were not fine. Because, you know, two and a half or three percent management fee on zero is still zero. But yes, we have this huge infrastructure to, to support. And I think every single one of my peers, as well as the Hilton, the Marriott, the world went through the same thing. So, John, thank God we were diversified. Our office performed well. Our multifamily performed well. And then we stepped up as principals and individuals, as did many of our investors. And we put a substantial amount of capital into the hotels. We did not give up on them. We did not throw the keys back and make it the lender's problem. We worked collaboratively and um, we think in hindsight, that was the right strategy. We're not out of the woods entirely on that. But to answer your question, we closed about five hotels during that time. We went through an analysis of, was it better to keep them open and operating? Was it better to close them? Operating costs don't go to zero when you're closed. You still have utilities. You have to run the mechanical systems on these big, sophisticated buildings. You have to have security, for example. And then when people are trying to cancel or move dates, you need people and sales. So, um, And then there was FEMA business out there. We had to go get that too. So we couldn't just fire everybody. And we love our people and wouldn't do that anyway. So the hotels that we closed were, all, were in markets where we had another hotel. So we would consolidate, close one of the hotels in that market where we had two or three. And so those ones we closed, we kept our people employed to the extent we could. It's a tragedy in this industry that people who work at the line level many times are laid off because of these cyclical factors. And so it makes it less likely they'll return or other people might look at the industry and say, hey, I don't want to go in hotels because they lay people off when there's a tough time. So it's horrific and it was horrible from the human perspective. We did support people who we laid off the best we could with you know, salary and things like grocery cards, and then bring them back as soon as possible. 
So did you reopen every of the hotels that you were involved in or, or we did some closed? We did. There was one hotel that went back to its lender, but we only owned 5% of it. And it was really the decision of our institutional joint venture partner. We didn't agree with that decision and we wanted to keep going, but unfortunately they precluded that. Did you manage it? After we did. You kept managing oh, sorry. No, afterwards, no. Did not manage it. Okay. All right. Um, even with adequate equity, how has the interest rate market affected your opportunities? Do you use MES, CPACE, potentially public subsidies to help bridge the gap on your deals? A hundred thousand percent. Yes. Every source of capital is crucial. In addition to what you've mentioned and all of which have been employed in deals past and present, we've used CrowdStreet for sure. crowdsourcing and they've been you know, just incredible to work with and brilliant guys, great investors, great model. We love them and you know, wish them all the success in the world. So it's really difficult to source capital today. I'd say the most difficult is the institutional joint venture equity for hotel development today. I would say that market's almost non-existent and we're you know, going to be resourceful and you know find sources of capital to, to build the deals that we want to build. So for example, we're you know pivoting to union pension funds. They're precluded from going directly into deals except under certain circumstances, but you know, we may have found a way to, to do that, for example. So we spend a lot of our time, and I, the 20% of my time that I need to spend thinking big thoughts, a lot of it is about access to capital, managing relationships in the capital markets, you know being ready when opportunity strikes and really talking to the smart people like you in our space to hear what's going on. Well, what's interesting about the hotel business is the personnel side, because you're one of the biggest employers in many markets. And when you go downtown and I mean, it's, it's a, I don't know what the size of the pie, you know, the slice of the pie in urban markets that hotels provide, but it's a, it's a big slice. And I assume you work with economic development. People say, look at these trade-offs. So, just to give you a little history of my background in, in the hotel investing space, I was involved in the in the financing of the Mandarin Oriental Hotel mm. in downtown Washington, which was the first financed hotel in the marketplace in D.C. And we actually were involved in the origins of the TIF legislation in yeah. Washington when Anthony Williams was mayor. And wow. It was a fascinating process going through that. But you do what's called a but-for test for, I don't know if you've ever done a, a TIF financing on any of your projects, but you have to demonstrate, you get consultants and all these attorneys and everything they pull together to explain, you know, how these bonds are going to be repaid, which are basically for the audience, a TIF financing basically is taking surrounding real estate and using the real estate taxes to subsidize the development of, a, of, a, of another property. And in this case, it's a hotel. And the drivers of the tax revenues coming out of that property, including, you know, all the hotel taxes, mm -hmm. the property taxes, mm -hmm. and food and beverage taxes, all these different revenue streams that come out of a hotel. So to me, that's the argument you go as, an, as a hotel developer to an urban market and say, we're bringing all this revenue to you guys, plus employment. Why don't you help us out? Yeah, yeah. John, we have access to public funds for some deals. I would say that a cautionary note is that the labor unions, the hotel unions, are so strong in places like New York. And Philadelphia. Right? And Philadelphia. That if you use TIF financing or other public funding, or even if you need a required variance, 
when you need city council approval, you're going to have to sign a card check neutrality agreement. There you go. And so you're signing up to the union, which greatly increases your operating costs. So your but for is, but probably not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you um, have no union uh, hotels? We do. We do have one. Uh-huh. We have one. Um, we, we absolutely love our people at that hotel. Um, we believe that the union um, provides things that you know, they appreciate. We would also provide things like health benefits. So we understand why they are part of union. We respect that the union um, is part of that hotel and always will be. But it does make the operating structure uh, inflexible. It limits the amount of money we can invest in the hotel as a result. Um, and so I'm not sure that it's you know, great for all stakeholders, but certainly for the employees. It's, you know, is your joint venture partner a union pension fund in the property? No, it is not. It seems to me if you did have that, you'd go to those guys and say, hey, how about investing here? You know, if you want to keep this it's property. A, it's a really good idea. You, bet. you know, yeah. that might be one way to do it. Yeah. Aligning interests. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Well <laughs> so let's pivot to your your company's culture. You've talked a lot about it already. The hotel industry is known for its emphasis on hospitality and creating memorable guest experiences. How do you spirit you infuse the spirit of hospitality in all aspects of your activities, from the real estate development to the hotel management side? Yeah, I want to mention that it's important to measure whether what you're doing is working. And culture is such an important part of PM Hotel Group and the efforts that myself and the senior leadership team put in that it's great to get a report card once in a while. So PM did two acquisitions in 2021. Um, One, a locally based firm called Modus, uh, and then another was a New Jersey based firm called uh, Paramount Hospitality. And so we added between those two about 20 hotels to our portfolio, mm-hmm. uh, all third party managed. And the feedback from the senior team and then the property teams was really positive that they appreciated many of the programs that were available, uh, whether it's 401k match or other, again, opportunities that we give them, um, career pathing. We have a you know, terrific online training infrastructure so we can track people and they can access classes, whether it's brand or things that we put on there or from third parties that allow them to progress their career and gain new skills and hence get promoted. So the point being that overwhelmingly the feedback from people joining PM Hotel Group from those two very strong professional organizations was positive and told us that what we're doing is resonating with our team. In addition, we were able to add significant market share to both of those portfolios, benefiting their owners significantly because of the people and systems that we have. So more scale gives you more resources, which we deploy, I think, effectively. So again, getting hired to do third-party work in a competitive environment and then getting feedback from people that have joined our organization has told us that we're on the right track. And so it starts with me. I think I can um, be a team member to dishwashers through general managers through a senior leadership team because I've done what they're doing. I appreciate what they're doing. Our core values are um, start with respect. And and by the way, we also respect our guests and our community and the environment. So it's not just internally facing, but but that underlines everything we do. Um, Teamwork, because a hotel is by definition a team. 
um, whether it's the person checking you in, driving the van, cleaning the room, cooking breakfast, booking your stay, et cetera. It takes a team. We believe in people who are driven and we want people to employ an entrepreneurial spirit. So those are the four core values. And every decision we make is through that lens, every interaction with our people and the things that we talk about are through that lens. And we're not the only management company out there. We're not the only good one out there. We're not the biggest. We're not the most successful, but it is working for us and it is leading to more M&A opportunities for us as people understand how we approach the business. The retention is a direct ROI. So replacing people is difficult. And when you don't have a person in a key situation or position you need, you'll lose revenue. So again, that virtuous cycle seems to be working on the culture. So I'll pause there. How about hiring? Go to that next level. Yeah, we do get a better response to our um, open opportunities through LinkedIn, et cetera, because of the reputation we have. We have a really significant alumni group and a lot of people have left and come back because they appreciate the way that we look at them and their career opportunities. So I feel like we're typically getting best-in-class people. Obviously, I'm not able to put someone in Hong Kong like you know, Hilton or Marriott can and or Four Seasons. So we respect that PM Hotel Group is not the perfect fit for everyone in every stage of their career. But we love promoting from within. And we think about things like, hey, if someone's washing dishes in our hotel, we're not executing the most difficult you know, culinary um, environment. So in other words, we're not you know, doing six-course plated chef tasting meals in most of our hotels. So why couldn't that person who already works with us under central culture, why can't we train them to be a cook? And so we really think about things that way too. Why can't someone who's in housekeeping work in front office when there's an opportunity? So we try to look internally first for people. And again, I think that that resonates and goes well, but we're probably about 50% of the industry turnover level, both at the property level and above property, which we track, which means we'll have to do less of that recruiting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the industry is so segmented. Do you manage anything like a Four Seasons or a Woods Carlton or something at that, you know, six-star level, five, six-star level, or... Are you mostly aimed at the four, three, two, well, say four and three level as far as stars in the hotel sector? Yeah. What's your target market for management? I guess? Yeah. Listen, 75% of our revenue comes from full service hotels. Got it. So we really do a great job with select service and extended stay, and we have an intense focus. But the majority of our hotels are full service. When you then divide it a little differently between traditional branded hotels, like we talked about the Marriott at Washington Capitol Hill versus a lifestyle hotel. We are in the luxury lifestyle space. We have about 10 hotels there today. And so I define that by elevated food and beverage by an average rate above the comp set or the more traditional uh, full service hotels and much more experiential, all urban. One example would be the Hotel DuPont in downtown Wilmington. It's a beautiful classic hotel. It was owned by the DuPont company forever, over 100 years. And their real goal for it was really just to accommodate executives. So we, we purchased it in 17, 2017, and we've turned it around to, we think, perform at a high level, both financially, but also in the type of services it provides. We have a chef partner from Philadelphia who's a star in that market, Tyler Eakin. So the signature restaurant there is called Le Cavalier. It's a great acclaim. We took the historic green room and made it a modern French bistro, but in a historic setting. So my point was not to belabor it, but that 
we have the tools to really execute in that luxury and lifestyle space. That part of our business is growing with a strong emphasis. Mm -hmm. There's a number of hotels that are under construction that we will manage where we're working closely with the owner to create the food and beverage concept today and to get it open and you know get the community excited about the restaurant and bar that'll be there on site. Mm -hmm. But that is a passion of ours and an area that we really want to um, grow in. What about the other end? budget sector. Is that something you just avoid or don't get involved in? I mean, in the very, very commodity-oriented hotel? Well, there's really good success stories, especially of late with Woodspring and other extended-stay hotels. So it's it's an area that we've looked at. We think that our skill set translate into that asset class, but it's not a place that we've focused. We don't have an ecosystem today that exposes us to opportunities in that space. Mm-hmm. My sense is that if BPG were to develop, you know, 10 of the new, you know, Hilton, Marriott, Hyatt, or IHG, you know, mid-scale extended state brands that, you know, we could do a good job, but we've really chosen to focus our energy in luxury lifestyle today. I would think it's more profitable long-term for you. Yeah. I was thinking about how many resources it would take to go find 10 sites, go through entitlement. and Unless you were to buy a portfolio, let's say. 30, 40 of them Existence. scattered around the country yeah. in good locations that you can just inst- implement your systems very quickly and you're off to the races. I, RLJ would do the same thing, right? Yes. Or, yes. <laughs> right? But unfortunately, so would Blackstone. <laughs> so, and they've got very inexpensive capital, or I say very efficient capital. Interesting. Yeah. Let's see. An important trend that has emerged even before the pandemic and that is ESG consciousness. Talk about Buccini Poland's and PM Hotel's focus on these principles. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. I like to think we were ahead of the curve. PM Hotel Group started creating sustainability reports about seven years ago, well before many of our peers even thought about that. So sustainability has been a focus of ours. Why? Well, okay. You know, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and oh, okay. I believe that recycling started there. And if I threw away a can, man, my mom let me have it. So it's always been in my consciousness. We were always conscious about saving water um, and recycling and being responsible to the environment. And I think, I think at the time, there was a greater understanding of the interaction and how important the environment was back then. And if you're not aware of it today, then you're not paying attention. Um, lots going on you know, that is the result of climate change. And so humans are affecting the environment. Again, in my personal opinion. But so we're doing the right thing for our communities, for our planet. And John, honestly, being mission-driven is so important to our people. They want to know that the organization they work for cares, not just about them, but about the environment. Um, So we didn't do it to recruit Gen Z and millennials, but boy, you better be able to talk about it if you want them to work for you, Um, especially if they're investing. You know, they want to hear about that. So the point being that we're talking all the time about energy conservation measures. We have probably a dozen projects underway right now in our hotels. Everyone knows about you know, converting to fluorescent lighting, but you know, we're going way above and beyond that. Um, converting steam plants to boilers, trying to get natural gas out of our buildings as we go forward to electrify them, making sure that each of our hotels has EV charging, easy access to that. And that's difficult to do. So that takes a lot of energy sourcing 100% sustainable energy. We were the first independent hotel management company to do that in 2020. I think we did in 2020. We were the first and only to do that. So we do walk the walk. And 
if you were to ask me who's on the Energy and Sustainability Committee, well, me, Joseph Bojanowski, the president, the CFO is on it. And then we have a sustainability leader in our organization. That's his job full-time. He just hired a full-time associate. So I don't know if anyone has more resources dedicated to that area than we do, but but that's not the only part of it. There's a corporate responsibility part of it, and that comes in the, the S&G, yes. the government, sorry, the governance and societal. And so we do a lot in those as well. And now our sustainability report is really a, a corporate responsibility report, which you can access online. So are you, is there a net zero uh, goal within your hotels at all? I mean, are you trying to get to the point where you're... Absolutely. At that point? Absolutely. We are, we are measuring it. We are working with um, Hilton and Marriott, especially High and ISG are also important partners. We are relying on them for some of the thought leadership because they drive brand standards. So if we're making, so if we're doing stay over housekeeping, meaning I'm cleaning your room every night, that kind of goes against that objective. So it has to be a balance. It's not just up to us. We also can't control what the source of power generation is on our grid. And it's different in Texas than it is in right. Virginia. So we're, we're humble about what we can do, but we are employing every single tool. What about to water us. recycling and that kind of thing? I mean, do you any of that? Or? We, well, we're doing composting. And in one hotel, we're doing a beta test with a digester. So instead of composting the food, we're putting in the digester and the bacteria are digesting the food and then it can just go as gray water. Wow. So we're really reducing waste in that way as well. But we're thinking about everything. Uh-huh. So you're testing a lot of things is what you're doing. Yeah. To some well, we're, we're doing things at scale, but we're also working on the next things too. Mm-hmm. With the emergence of AI and other technology impacts on both hospitality and real estate, how have your companies leveraged these tools in a productive way? Yeah, well, as you know, AI's been around. Um, I'd say in the hotel space, what people have experienced most frequently is if you make a reservation at, let's say, our Canopy Hotel in Portland, Oregon, we will offer you parking at a discount. We'll offer you breakfast and maybe other things based on your propensity to buy those things in the past. So that's AI. And so the goal is to really maximize revenue. Um, I would say the way that I would love to see AI employed in the future is to give us more tools to compete with um, the online travel agents. If you think about their model, they'll get anywhere from 10 to 25% of our revenue, depending on the hotel and the source of the booking, and have no expense, no property tax, no labor costs, no sheets. It's just pure revenue for them without any direct expense. And then they use a lot of those proceeds to market against us. You see Trivago ads on CNN a lot these days. So we feel that the most revenue that we can keep within the lodging industry ecosystem, the better. So we think AI can be a tool in helping identify when people are going to make travel decisions and having them book directly versus book through you know formats, platforms like that. So that's the goal for us. We also think it'll help us with things like scheduling because, you know, associates want predictable, consistent schedules, but our business flows are not always predictable and consistent. They're cyclical and seasonal and day week is different. So if we can use AI to get to a win-win there, for example, in the near term, that would be fantastic. So do you have uh, systems as far as rate management? So can you look at, you know, 
trends of things or you know times of the season or different days even looking at 365 day analysis so today we typically have this and we've got all these different factors i mean is AI incorporated in any of those decision-making process at all or not? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the, the idea is that you know, revenue management is reacting to thousands of different inputs. Right. Um, the ultimate goal would be, so what's happening in the hotel, i.e. in terms of demand? The next step is what's happening in our peers with their demand and how do we get smarter based on that? Right. Then the ultimate is how do we think about your propensity to buy. Right. So what rate should I show Get you? inside somebody's head. Yeah. Are you going through the honors app? Are you going through hotels.com? Uh, are you calling the hotel? And what rate, in other words, is your propensity to buy higher in one of those channels and hence should we offer you a different rate or a different package based mm -hmm. on that? Mm -hmm. And we know potentially that, hey, last time you wanted parking breakfast, so this time we're gonna lead with that. And we know that if you like a high floor far away from the elevators, then maybe we'll start with that. And so, yes, there's a lot to do on that front. Interesting. Interesting. So what, you know, we talked about employment, but, you know, what, what characteristics do you look for in the prospective employee? Somebody comes to interview with you. Yeah, okay, I want to tell a quick story. So when, when we were a small company with maybe three or four hotels, I used to interview the general managers. And I was really busy and I'm still fairly busy. And so Greg Miller, my partner, again, who I am still partners with today and who I love, you know, Greg brought a general manager to meet me. I had like one minute. And so I, I shook this person's hand and, oh, you know, Bill seems great. I can't remember his name. And so a couple weeks later, Bill didn't work out and it was really bad. And so as we were talking about that, lessons learned, Greg said, well, you interviewed him. I was like, well, I had one minute with him and you said, this is the guy. So... I just stopped interviewing general managers at that point, and it really yeah, hit home to me that you know people should have the ability, but also the responsibility to hire their team, and then be responsible for and accountable for the performance of that team. And so I really don't get involved in um, hiring at the senior levels even. I have really four direct reports. So the leader of our asset management group, chief investment officer, Darren Anselm, again, who's terrific. Joseph Bojnowski, my partner, who's president of PM Hotel Group, and my assistant. And that's really all I want. Um, and I see people that have 10, 12, 15 direct reports. And I don't know that they would have that 20% of their time to really think big thoughts. And if I'm not doing it, who's doing it? So I don't do a lot of hiring. <laughs> personnel issues come to you occasionally, I assume. Infrequently. Yeah. I will get feedback from time to time from uh, a partner that, hey, the leader of this asset or this company did or didn't do something great. And so I will you know, take that under into account. So let's shift to some personal things here. What are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back? Yeah, one, two, three. I, I'm really fortunate. You know, I've got three kids who, they're my priority. Spending time with my wife, um, what I love to do. And so, you know, every opportunity I get to do that, I do. And, um, you know, see the 20-year-old, 18-year-old, and 14-year-old turning into really great, responsible, thoughtful people uh, is my greatest joy. Um, so that, that is number one by far. And then, then work, it's, it's more to me than just a job because I think about my responsibility to the people in this organization and my 
responsibilities to provide opportunity. So their careers can progress and grow, by the way, or they'll leave. So in a sense, it's good for me too. So I don't know that I'll ever be able to put the oar down and just coast, you know, we'll be growing hard for the rest of my career. Hope that's a long time, but I do spend, you know, 50 to 60 hours in a typical week. I'm on the road once a week um, because I love what I do. I love to be there in person. It's a tangible business. You have to be on site. You have to interact with people, investors, stakeholders as well. And then on the community front, I really have kind of three main focuses there. Um, really firm believer in education. And I, that's not controversial. I don't think anyone would be surprised by that. But I, I support Cornell, not only because of the benefits I've gotten from it, but I really want future leaders to have you know, the best possible experience with the resources they need to learn so that they can come work with me and with others. I'm a huge believer in women's education. My daughters both went to Holton Arms here at Bethesda, and I served nine years on the board. It's just concluded. And I know firsthand that these are the women who will change the world. And we look at societies that have high levels of girls' and women's education, and they're the most successful societies. So I'm a passionate supporter of women's education. I'm also a supporter of Jewish causes. And the way that I arbitrage that, because there are so many great ones, is I work with the Jewish Federation of Washington. They're kind of like my wealth management advisor, but on philanthropy, because they're so close to all the local organizations. And then we're very close with a group here, a motel group called Feed the Fridge. So I really want to do something tangible where I can be hands-on packing lunches and you know giving dollars directly to a cause that directly impacts my neighbors. So it's a worthy organization. It's run by this incredibly brilliant and talented guy, Mark Bucher, who founded Medium Rare. And his story is incredible, maybe worth uh, talking to him one day about what he does. But um, they actually office right next to us in Subley space, um, and we work closely with them. Mm-hmm. That's great. So what were the biggest wins, losses, and surprising events in your career? <laughs> Every day is a surprise. Gosh, <laughs> I didn't think it'd be this exciting going into real estate. But I'd say the the probably the biggest win was when that second hotel really took off. Not, yeah, not to take anything away from the office. But right. I just happened to be closer to that hotel. That was really reaffirming for us and allowed us to have a track record. And by it's really fun to make money because you're, you're working hard anyway, right? And so you hopefully you're making money. And if you're not profitable, then maybe that's the community you're in or the society you're part of telling you something that maybe you should be doing something else. Not you, of course, but but in general. So we know that being profitable is important. So we were able to kind of prove the concept. It just felt great to close that deal um, and recycle the capital to our investors who had taken a huge flyer. Right. We were so unproven. So paying their, repaying their faith in us was so, God, that was great. That felt great. I would say that, you know, the, the downsides have been the, the, the cycles where really nothing that we did contributed to the Great Recession or COVID certainly, but having to navigate that um, and the impact it had on our people just just was heartbreaking. Um, you know, people, when, when I gave someone a $100 grocery card and they cried because they couldn't imagine someone being that generous, you know, that was so powerful and poignant. And so that, that really is the worst part of this business is what the impact of the cycles have on the people you work with and love. And the surprise would be how we got into professional soccer. Um, and it was not something we set out to do. My partner and I, actually, Rob Buccini and I and his brother, Chris, who's been a partner since 1998. So 
almost as long as Rob and I started the business, um, we all played football. And did I played? I ran track and did other things too, but no one was a soccer player. So we owned property in Chester, Pennsylvania. And long story short, um, Major League Soccer identified that site as a potential MLS stadium. We met the developer, sorry, the owner of the team, Jay Sugarman, um, who was already ordered the franchise. Jay's a brilliant real estate guy. High star. Yes. Public company. He's actually CEO of two or three public companies. Safe, I think, is his big latest venture, right? Yeah, Safe And I I literally cannot say enough good things about him. He's so kind and so smart and strategic that uh, it's been probably the best part has just been learning from him and being part of his organization at the union. But so we own land, not for the stated goal of building a stadium, but that's how we got involved. We met Jay, we hit it off. Jay said, hey, even if I don't build on your site, let's team up. So as developers, we were able to um, entitle the site, finance it, get it built. We bought construction actually at the very bottom of the Great Recession. So you know, what would have cost, or what cost, you know, let's say 130 million back then would be... So was it a privately owned stadium? It, well, it's it's on a lease like pretty much every other property. Okay. But we, the, the source of capital was a mix of public and private, to your point earlier. Mm-hmm. So the state and many agencies were uh, supportive with capital for that. It's been a, a pretty positive economic catalyst for that area. Um, Team headquarters is there now. We've moved the academy down there, which is really a high school. The team runs a high school with a headmaster. So does a soccer team make money? I would say we think it's a good investment. <laughs> I don't want to betray too much, but we have yet to have income tax problems through our ownership of okay. the Philadelphia Union. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's more fun than profitable per se today and listen the goal is you can see what the last franchises were awarded for right hundreds of millions um it's public that the team paid 30 million for its license back then um, so we hope that there's some appreciation along the way well looking at the owners of most you know professional sports teams it's more of a toy than it is really something to make money with yeah i mean i look at the learner family with washington uh, nationals and my guess is they don't make a whole lot of money there, but it's yeah. more of an ego, somewhat of an ego thing there. Yeah, brings joy. You know, one thing you're talking about with leadership too, if you looked at the 22 years prior to Dan Snyder's 22 years of ownership, oh, yeah. three Super Bowls, yeah. 18 wins, playoff wins, and during Dan's tenure, one playoff win. So do you think there's some lessons on leadership there? Yeah. I mean, Jack King Cook really knew what to do and find the right people. And let them do their business. Exactly. Yeah. Stayed out of their business. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what, a, what inspired you to start the podcast series? Well, that's an interesting question. I just believe that uh, that, that our industry's not been talked about and in our in this market. And there are so many interesting people that we that I've talked to in this marketplace that have shared their stories. Mm-hmm. It's been a great fun thing to do. And I just recognized being a podcast fan for several years before starting it, I got a sense, hey, why don't I do this for the people that I know in this marketplace? And now I've met a lot of people through it, of course. And I mean, I've never done business with you before, but I've done business with an awful lot of people that helped me get started with this whole process. And that's been fun. And my, my goal, and I've told this to the guests before, the, the listeners before, is that I'm paying it forward after a you know, fairly successful career. And yes. 
mortgage banking and investing and that kind of thing. So that's my that's my duty right now, and I have a community of young people that I'm trying to foster that with. So, as we know, no industry can be successful without talented leaders, and I think real estate's a difficult industry to break into for young people. No doubt. So thank you for doing that because we really want people to think there's a future for them in our business. There is. And, you know, whether it's brokerage or consulting or working with a sponsor like Mm -hmm. us, capital markets, design, or even working on the engineering or design or municipal side, there's so many ways to be involved in this incredible industry. It's so multifaceted. I mean, as as I've said in the past, there are three legs to the stool in our industry and in a lot of industries, communications, analytics, and form or architecture, art. Those are the ways I look at it. And real estate is unique. And, you know, instead of trading bonds and stocks on a, on, a, on a terminal, you're out there every day, as you like to do, get out and kick the bricks, be out on the real estate, yeah. talk to the people, be, you know, be involved in yeah. physical assets. You can see the physical aspect of it. That's yeah. the exciting part about real, part about real estate. Yeah. So, and if you want a new challenge every day, this is your <laughs> industry. <laughs> Particularly hotels. That's right. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? Ah, Oh, myself? Okay. Yeah, just, okay, it's it's hard to stay present in both today and in the future. And our business is so capital intensive and strategically sensitive that you can't make decisions through the lens of just what's good today. Conversely, it's really hard to get out of bed sometimes because it's so difficult, the environment that we're in right now. So you have to get up every single day and just think about what do I need to do today One day to be time. successful? Yeah. The balance being that those things that you are doing should be setting up for success in the future. So do you make that investment in an existing property or do you have to say, no, I can't do that today because the value may not be there in the future. So it, it's, it's really challenging. I would say just take it one day at a time, but the direction that you're headed, make sure it's taking you where you want to be. You have a North Star, in essence. Well said, yeah. Well said. Yeah. So if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? You know, I'm going to say, put down your phone and pay attention. Yes, of course, to the car in front of you. But um, I feel like we have these really existential challenges today. Our generation is, I don't know if the word is blessed or uh, really challenged because there's macro factors like global warming that it doesn't feel like everyone's getting the message. And if you weren't getting it this summer between the forest fires and the heat waves and all the other manifestations of climate change, the 100 degree ocean in Miami or Florida. Violent thunderstorms we've had just recently this week. Right. Bringing it home. Listen, I think Netflix is great and YouTube is great and whatever else you do, but I think people need to be engaged. We think about it through the sustainability lens. That's how we can, you know, better we can make the world a better place. But I also worry about our country and some of the political dysfunction where it's not necessarily about doing what's best for the country, but more how do I make the person who's in power now lose so that I can win or raise more money. Um, and you know, I think about our fiscal challenge as a country. You know, we don't want to end up where Greece was, where we lose our financial freedom. We also have uh, you know, issues, well, way beyond that, like immigration, where we have to come together as a country 
and decide what's in our country's best interest. Whether that's in the best interest of the people immigrating or not, you know, that's a secondary factor. It's important. But we just should decide what's best for us and then do that. We're very sensitive to that in the service industry because those are the people who um, are taking care of us every day in our hotels and restaurants and construction sites, et cetera. So we just we want to value them. And, and if the country decides that you know, we're placing its workforce so that we can support the people who are retiring is a laudable goal, then let's get on with it. So I'd say engage. That's great. Dave Poland, thank you very much for your time. And uh, this is a very informative interview. And I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be so thoughtful and uh, have a discussion with somebody who understands the big picture. So thank, thank you very you. much. Well, we just listened to Dave Poland uh, of Puccini Poland and PM Hotel Group and Corten, three companies that he oversees. He's a co-partner on on all of them, although PM Hotels is really his animal, and Puccini Poland is a you know multi-asset, different product in different marketplaces company with its two partners, Rob and uh, Rob Poland and. I'm sorry, Rob Puccini and uh, his brother Dave Puccini. So anyway, so as I usually do, I'm bringing on my postscript postscript guest, and it's Kevin Dean this time. Kevin, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, John. Excited to be here. Thank you. So, Kevin, what do you think of Dave Poland and his his enterprise, and what are your takeaways from the from the episode today? Yeah, tons of takeaways. I learned a, a lot from Dave coming from the multifamily side of the business and just kind of looking more into the hotel sector with Dave's experience was interesting. Obviously, both real estate, but completely different businesses. So kind of excited to get into that. In terms of takeaways, one of the first takeaways that I had that, that really stuck out to me was just the value of the last name that he has. And I really like that he didn't shy away from the fact that, you know, his last name being Poland was one of the arrows that he kind of had in his quiver when he was first getting started. And that, you know, based on the experience of, you know, the people in his family who've come before him in the business, it led to some great relationships, including the relationship with the bank that I believe financed his first deal. And I think it's just cool because a lot of times, you know, People who are successful and may have benefited from people, whether it was their father or their uncle, sometimes shy away from recognizing the fact that that is the case, that it was a factor in their success. It wasn't everything, but it was something. And as a business owner myself, I hope that one day, you know, my son can, can see the value in our last name and maybe even use that to his advantage. So I just really liked thinking through the fact that that was a major factor in in the success of his early days in his business. What was interesting about that also is that he decided not to join either his father's company, which was a hotel company in Seattle, or his uncles, who obviously right. had a, a, not only a residential um, ownership of properties here in the Washington area, but obviously ownership of the Washington Bullets and Capitals team, Dave Bullen did. So he said, great, thanks for the introduction, but I want to do my own thing. <laughs> I want my own business, which I thought was interesting. But they did Absolutely. help. Yeah, and speaking of starting his own business, that kind of leads to the second takeaway. 
you in the beginning of the podcast, Dave talked about this a bit, and then you asked him at the end of the podcast as well, what was some of you, what were some of your biggest wins over your career? And he went back to his second deal. I believe it was a comfort suite right outside of BWI. And he mentioned that, you know, the first deal wasn't going as well as he had expected. It seemed like maybe they were over budget and was taking longer uh, to open than he had expected. And he kind of looked forward and knew that, hey, you know, if I don't get started on the second project, it might not happen. So in the face of kind of the uncertainty in the first deal and, you know, just the struggles that probably were coming with that and the, the, the lost hours of sleep as he's trying to figure out and resolve how he's going to make that deal work, he decides to just plow forward and get the second deal going. And he mentioned that that one took off like a rocket and it ended up really propelling their business and giving them a track record. So I thought that was a cool story that illustrated one of those key decisions that he made in his early days of starting his business that I'm sure he looks back at today and he knows that if he hadn't done that, things may have turned out differently. Yep. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think it's a lot easier said than done. <laughs> To make that decision you know, in that moment. To, to, to take additional risk when you're struggling on something, knowing that you have a business plan and you want to execute, it takes courage to jump out there. No. Absolutely. You know, I'm struggling with the first deal, but I know that I could, you know, if I keep going, I may have an opportunity on the next one. So let's keep trying here. Absolutely. And you learn so much in those in that first deal and the second deal and the third deal. So it is a good bet to make on yourself because you realize, you know, if I could eliminate some of these errors on the next one, you know, I can find that success that I was looking for on this first one. And I think it's also just a good thing for us to remember in this market we're in right now. You know, I'm sure there's lots of people who have deals right now and they're struggling. And if you can kind of segment, you know, your business and your mind where you've got maybe the deals that you really are struggling with and you need to turn around and make some tough decisions, but then also looking ahead at the opportunity and realizing, hey, this this isn't going to knock me out of the business and I, I need to keep moving forward. So yep. persistence is important. Absolutely. Um, the last takeaway that I had that was interesting was just the complexity of the hotel business. Everybody has experience in hotels just as, at least as a, a consumer, but it's interesting hearing kind of what goes into actually operating the hotel business and how complex it really is. Something as, as, as simple as pricing your, your rooms, you know, when you compare that to the apartment business, which we operate in, you know, we're doing, say, a market comp study, you know, twice a month and then adjusting rates, maybe, you know, they've got a way more complex pricing model that they need to consider on a daily basis. And then he also gets into the various demand drivers and revenue streams that they need to manage, you know, anything from weddings to food and beverage. So I thought it was just interesting how how complex that business really is and what it takes to actually be a a top operator in that business. Well, it really isn't a real estate business. It's an operating business. <laughs> You know, the real estate's important, obviously, from a location standpoint. You have all the ex fixed expenses of real estate. But from a operation standpoint, there's nothing like it in real estate, a hotel business. So 
you have day-to-day operations, you have revenue management, you got all the expenses and the overhead and, and the amount of personnel involved is probably double any of the other real estate sector businesses. So even large office buildings don't have nearly the personnel need that you would have in a, uh, in a hotel property. Agreed. Uh, particularly full, particularly full service, full service hotels. <laughs> it's yeah. a very complex animal. <laughs> no question. That was all I had in my end, John. I don't know if you had any other takeaways or um, things you'd like to yeah. highlight from the podcast. Yes. I'll just say that Dave learned a lot growing up. He, he brought his learnings as a young man with his father's, you know, growing up in Seattle or in Portland and his dad was in the business and he learned, you know, washing dishes and all that. And what was interesting he was real intrigued in the hotel business, went to Cornell, which is the best hotel school. You know, some might argue otherwise, but from what I've heard, it is. And comes out, and couldn't get a job. And so he had, through a relationship, he was introduced to Laventhal Horwath, which was the big, at that time, the big hotel consulting firm. They did advisory work and accounting work. Well, unfortunately, they went out of business six months into his job there so he had to pivot from that and came back to washington and sat down with his uncle and said you know i want to do my own thing so he reached back to his buddy in college and they said let's let's see if we can get something started here so they went ahead and as you said he got the lead from the bank and his uncle here to, for a bank loan to finance his first deal. He just off to, was off to the races then. Slowly but surely built his company through buying the properties and managing around him. And he found the right people for his hotel group and growing the hotel management. And seeing it from his, his father's perspective, he saw that you have to control as much as you can about the operations of the property in the hotel. And if you're going to invest in it, you may as well have the management infrastructure as well. So he built that. And then through his classmate, Lucini's, he didn't dive too deeply into their business, but which is the apartment and office business. But he's involved with that as well. And then he also talked about the soccer team which they were approached on a piece of land that they controlled in Chester, Pennsylvania. And so they became partners in the Philadelphia Union Major League Soccer Team, which was interesting. Um, so I asked him, is it a profitable business? He said, nah, not yet, John. <laughs> but I, I think it's good public relations for them, and he's having fun with it. So anyway, it was quite a conversation. Quite a diverse set of businesses that he's in. And uh, he's been through the mill on a lot of things. And he's only in his early 50s. I think he's doing quite well. And he's recovered quite well from, from the pandemic, which were pretty tough times for him. Any other thoughts, Kevin? No, I, I would just add that for anybody listening, it's worth going to to their website and checking out their portfolio and just looking at how diverse of a portfolio they do. You know, anything from parking to residential to 
sports and entertainment to hotel, office. It's, it's really cool just to kind of look through their website and see the various projects that they've done. Well, I think the, you know, emphasizing that point, I don't know if there's another company that I'm aware of that's as diverse as they are in the different product types with the, the depth of investment. We didn't even talk about their private equity firm. It's a separate company called Core 10 Properties, too, which invests in apartments and in residential and in apartment hotels, as typically as a subordinate lender or private or joint venture partner in some deals. And in fact, I think he said that Cortana owns some assets individually too for themselves. But he said he hasn't cross-pollinated their their money with the other operating companies yet. They're keeping them for the Chinese wall separately. So he's in capital markets, he's in hotels, he's in apartments, he's in office, and then managing office as well in separate businesses. So Quite, quite an impressive uh, guy and company, etc. So, Kevin, thank you very much for joining me today, and thank you, listeners, for listening to another episode. And, uh, we will be back in uh, in two weeks for another one. Thank you very much.